All right. Well, let's take uh, the Word of God uh, this, uh, this evening, this hour, and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 25. Exodus and chapter uh, 25. We are entering now one of what I would consider one of the most glorious sections of the Old Testament. From chapter 25 to chapter 40, with a pause in chapter 32 and 33, which is the children of Israel committing idolatry, we're going to find here some great details uh, about the tabernacle, called here the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, the furniture and the activity of the and the service of the priesthood. And we may find often actually this section, the remainder of the book of Exodus, to be often neglected or quickly read through, right? Oh, there's all this stuff and all this material. And uh, we, we really, if we would ask some questions of how familiar we are with the book of Exodus, we might think more towards the beginning of the book of Exodus, and we might answer questions quickly about the first part of Exodus. But when we come to chapter 25 and the remainder, uh, perhaps we are less familiar uh, with that section. Uh, I think that along with the Passover, uh, the tabernacle itself, whose architect is God himself, uh, points us in great details to the character and work of Jesus Christ. And apart from the Passover and also the tabernacle, I don't know of any other greater example or picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, those two things which are found in the book of Exodus. So perhaps the book of Exodus uh, stands above other books as showing us who Jesus Christ is, what his ministry would be, and what would be the result of his ministry and his work. And so God in his infinite wisdom has given us here uh, this divine revelation, but specifically through illustrations, through uh, concrete representations, through visible pictures, all communicating to us the wonderful work of salvation. Uh, you see, God brings his message here, I think, down to the intelligence of man uh, so that we might understand what salvation is. Uh, it is often easier to understand truths. I think when, if you know children, uh, how they learn to read, often you put a picture beside a letter so that they might reconcile what this letter is uh, as the first letter of the word. And there's a picture that accompanies, and that's how often children learn and so the tabernacle really is that. The tabernacle, its contents, assist us in understanding the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. The tabernacle had a, has a number of names as we look throughout uh, the book of Exodus, uh, Numbers, and Leviticus. Uh, but one of those names is found, and you don't have to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 9, verse 15, the Bible says, And on the day that the tabernacle was reared... Up the cloud cover the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony. I like that. The expression, the tent of the testimony, in reference to the tabernacle, is only found four times in the Old Testament. And so the tabernacle stands as the testimony of God. Uh, man was not the designer of it, uh, but God Himself ordered the dimensions as well as the material that was used in constructing the tabernacle. Uh, 
And so this indeed is the tent of the testimony of God. We spoke this morning about how Paul proclaimed in Corinth the testimony of God. Well, how does he proclaim that? I think perhaps he would make reference to the tabernacle, which is the testimony of God. And so the testimony of God uh, of himself to man. Uh, it is also called, there's different expressions concerning uh, the sanctuary. It is called the tabernacle of the congregation 133 times. It is called the tabernacle of witness. In Numbers 17, 7, it's uh, referred to it at five times. It is also called the tabernacle of the Lord. In Numbers 17, 13, it's called that ten times in the Old Testament. It is also called the tabernacle of the house of God uh, in Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 48. But this portion is of great importance for a number of reasons. You see, the New Testament, and especially the book of Hebrews, cannot be properly understood without understanding the contents of Exodus and Leviticus. Because when we come to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews assumes an understanding of Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 40. And so uh, we have a clear understanding when we come to the book of Hebrews, if we uh, have a clear understanding of what took place here and what God did, because if you would... We don't have the full explanation of the meaning of the materials in the book of Hebrews. But it is assumed that we know the significance of the materials used based on what we find in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. And so the New Testament, and especially the book of Hebrews, cannot be properly understood. And I, what I mean by that is, maybe not the word right was not properly, but to its fullest extent, uh, to... Uh, it's full knowledge without the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. We also know that the book of Exodus was written for our learning. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, he says that whatsoever things were written afore were written for our learning. And so we can learn something from uh, the Old Testament revelation of Exodus 25 through 40. But also we learn that the book of Exodus was written for our prophet. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so although we may be more familiar with the first part of the book of Exodus, I think we should understand that the second part of Exodus is also just as profitable, if not more, as it points us to Christ uh, than many other portions of Scripture. But all the Scripture is profitable, and so we should not just skim over or pass over a section of Scripture. Uh, consider it this way. There are only two chapters in the entire revelation of the Bible, and really if you go to Genesis, there are only two chapters dedicated to speak of the wonder of creation. And uh, by the way, today uh, there's uh, whole organizations and nonprofits who are focused on uh, creation and the seven days of creation and they study the wonders of creation and space and nature and all the order that is found in that. Uh, but let me remind you that there are only two chapters in Genesis dedicated to the creation. Uh, no matter how great and wonderful it may be, only two chapters of how God made the earth to be inhabited by man. Yet, in Exodus, there are ten chapters here that are dedicated to speak of the tabernacle and how God instructed man to construct so that he might inhabit the tabernacle. 
There are 18 chapters in the book of Leviticus dedicated to the tabernacle, 13 in the book of Numbers, and two in the book of Deuteronomy. And so if we think about the weight of importance here uh, by the sheer volume of the scripture concerning the tabernacle in comparison to creation and how wonderful creation is, the tabernacle is of this much greater significance. In other words, God places more value and importance on the tabernacle and what the tabernacle represents because it is the chief revelation of himself to man. The creation, no doubt, reveals God. It speaks of God. It testifies of God, but not to the degree that the tabernacle does. Because many are they who acknowledge that God is creator, but fewer acknowledge that God has revealed himself in the person of Christ. And so when we think about the, uh, the dedication of this particular tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the material that was used and the, uh, uh, the, the service of the priest in the tabernacle, uh, all of those things have significance. And so I want us to read here in Exodus chapter 25. We're going to, uh, verse 1 through 9 is the first mention of the sanctuary or the tabernacle. And beginning in verse 10, he's going to just mention the ark. But uh, remember, this is the first mention, but the, the next 10 chapters expound on uh, what uh, this sanctuary is all about. And so we're going to look this evening at this sanctuary. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word in Exodus chapter 25 and we're verse 1 through 9. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1 through 9. And the word of God says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram's skins dyed red and badgered skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I'd like to preach this evening on this thought, the sanctuary, God's dwelling place. The sanctuary, God's dwelling place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. And Lord, I pray that you might help me this evening. I feel so inadequate to communicate your glory, and what is represented in this tabernacle. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to get a glimpse of who you are, but specifically that we might be uh, taken back and stand in wonder and awe at your condescension, that you desire to dwell among men. 
It is hard for understand that a holy God would dwell among sinners. And yet, although we understand that in the tabernacle, it is chiefly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, who came and dwelled among men, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, Lord, help us to see how this tabernacle reflects your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'd like to first establish some basic things, and really this is the first mention. He doesn't go into details. He simply speaks to Moses about an offering, about the material that they're to bring, and what the material is for. And so this is, uh, if you would, a introduction to the tabernacle, to the sanctuary. We know nothing so far in Genesis and Exodus about a tabernacle, about a sanctuary, but we learn of this right here for the first time. And so we have an introduction. This idea of a sanctuary for God is introduced uh, to Moses, and Moses is going to communicate out to the people, and I do want to communicate how different this is from what they've experienced thus far. Just the previous chapter, remember, that God invited uh, Moses and uh, Aaron and uh, Abihu and her to come up on the mountain with the 70 elders uh, the people could not come into the mountain, only that specific group. But then that group was to stay behind, maybe about halfway up. And then Moses was to uh, go to the top and Joshua accompanying him. And in other words, the people did not uh, come into that top of the mountain where the presence of God was. And immediately now in the next chapter, in Exodus chapter 25, we have where God says to Moses, I want you to tell the people to build me a tabernacle so that I may dwell among them. You see, that's the uh, uh, something different than all that they've seen so far at Mount Sinai, where only Moses can go and no other man. And now God says, I want you to tell the people that I want to dwell among them. So this is something different. And all, all of a sudden we have, there, there, there's got to be something different about this tabernacle about this place where God dwells, where his presence is. And, and just for sake of reference here, we know that no tabernacle and no temple or no uh, building contains God. But this is going to be a place of significance where God says it's a representation of the truth that I want to dwell among my people. And so what do we learn in this first mention of the sanctuary specifically about this sanctuary and what God is communicating to Moses. The first thing we learn here is that we learn that the materials were gathered from a people or from the people as a free will offering from the heart. Uh, that's the first thing that's mentioned for us. The Lord in verse 1 speaks unto Moses and here's what he says to Moses in verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. But notice here, this is not going to be given by strict command that if anybody does not bring an offering, he is cut off from the people. No, not at all. He says, of every man that giveth it, notice, willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And so what we learn here about the constructing of this tabernacle, specifically the material that's going to be used, is that they were gathered from the people as a free will offering from the heart. You see, the Lord instructed Moses to speak unto the children of Israel that they might be participants in gathering the materials. By the way, it doesn't say for what purpose. 
but just to gather the material. And we're going to see it's going to be for a sanctuary. They don't know the dimensions yet. Uh, they don't know the layout yet, but they're going to bring the material. You see, the materials were provided by a voluntary offering, uh, which was the expression evidently here of a devoted heart to the Lord. Uh, as we look at the timeline, considering that the instruction is given, uh, chapter 25, 26, all the way to chapter 32, and, but the tabernacle is not constructed in those chapters. It's just saying, construct this. Here's the material. Here's the dimension. Here's the layout. Here's what's needed for the construction of the tabernacle. And then chapter 32 and 33, the people commit idolatry and sin against God. And it is only after that that the tabernacle is constructed which kind of gives us a little picture of salvation, that there might be this idea of devotedness to God, but knowing that man goes astray, but then when God uh, comes and dwells among his people, it is not that the people have been faithful, it is that the people have sinned. And that's when the, ta the tabernacle gets constructed, only after the people have sinned. And obviously we know that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come to save those who have dedicated themselves to the Lord, but those who have sinned and rebelled against God. And so God instructed this tabernacle to be constructed with the material provision of those who desired his presence among them. It's interesting, I made reference to this just uh, earlier, but it is uh, in the actual construction of the tabernacle that the, in chapter 36, the people bring the material. And in Exodus 36, verse 5, the Bible says this, And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. That's a strong word. I got more to bring. And uh, they had to be, no, 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 you can't bring anymore. No, I, I got more to bring. No, no, you can't come. We got too much. For the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and the Bible says, and too much. I think about those words that are used. Much more than enough. Restrained from bringing sufficient and too much. Uh, that's what the people brought. And so, so those who would serve the Lord Jesus Christ today are to do so, by the way, on a voluntary basis. But it is, it is, however, the demonstration of the outpouring of love and generosity. That's, that's where you find uh, that someone whose heart is given to God, there is an outpouring of love and demonstration. As I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, that uh, love is always demonstrated in a practical way. It is not just words. But it is evidenced here by their dedication and by the things that they bring, and there was sufficient and, and too much and more than enough. We read about the material here from verse 3 through verse 7. And so we learn first that the materials were gathered from a people as a free will offering from the heart. The second thing we learn from verse 3 through verse 7, as we look at the materials themselves, we learn that uh, the materials to be gathered, have a specific significance attached to them. Now, we're going to establish, when we find those materials being brought and what the significance of those materials are, but we're going to find and study the significance of these materials which are described at a later time. And we, we may not summarize the materials and their uh, significance 
with relationship to Jesus Christ. Uh, here's one summary I found, which was pretty concise, and we're going to get into it later, but here let me just mention, because he doesn't mention the significance here. But let me summarize it this way, that these all speak of Christ. The gold, his divine glory, the silver, the redemption which he wrought and bought for us, the brass, his capacity to endure the wrath of God against sin, the blue, his heavenly origin, the purple, his royal majesty, the scarlet, his earthly glory in a coming day, the fine linen, his holiness made manifest by his righteous walk and ways, the goats here, his atonement, the ram's skins, his... Um, his um, devotedness to God, the badger skins, his ability to protect his people, uh, this, the, the wood, his incorruptible humanity, the oil for light, his divine wisdom, the spices, his, his, his fragrance unto God, and the precious stones, his priestly perfections. So that's a summary. I will get into that at a later time. I mean, even the, we talk about, we're going to talk about even the clothing of the priest, uh, in other words, every detail is specifically given to point us to Jesus Christ in some way. And so we come to verse 8 and 9, as we'll study the materials later, but he says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Here's the third thing we learn about the sanctuary. We learn that the sanctuary is to be a consecrated place with reference to the people. The word sanctuary itself here, we don't have the word tabernacle. We have the word sanctuary. And it's important here because this is the first time that is mentioned. Many other names will be given to the tabernacle. We uh, mentioned some of them earlier, but here he refers to that as, as the sanctuary or a sanctuary. And the word sanctuary means a consecrated thing. It is a holy place. It is to be in the minds of the people a place that is separate from all other places. It is exclusive. There is no other place like this. And so here the people, we, we learn that the sanctuary is to be consecrated, a consecrated place uh, to the people. And this is special, again, because in light of chapter 24, they could not go up to the mountain. Uh, they could not speak uh, as Moses did face to face with God. They could not have access. If any man touched the mountain, he was to be thrust through with a spear. But here in this place, this is a dedicated place to God for the people. And we're going to find that the tabernacle is going to be there, sit there in the midst with all of the tribes surrounding the tabernacle, this sanctuary. We also learn here in those verses that the Lord will make this sanctuary his dwelling place among the people. Do you notice here what God says? Make me a sanctuary. He doesn't say make you a sanctuary. He says make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so we see here that the sanctuary was not, it's not the expression of man's desire for God to be among them. The sanctuary is the expression of God's desire to be among his people. Uh, again, they had just witnessed the distance between God and themselves at Mount Sinai. And yet God says, I want to dwell 
among them. You see, through all the scene, we already saw earlier in Exodus chapter 20 that when the people saw the blackness and the tempest, they said to Moses, let not God to speak to us anymore. There is, they understood there was a distance between God and themselves, and they no longer wanted to come up to the mountain because they saw it as a place of fear, but now God says, I'm going to be in the midst of them. And so here, God is dwelling among his people. The fifth thing we learn is that the Lord himself is the designer and the great architect of this tabernacle. Notice the wording in verse 9, according to all that I show thee. It is interesting that these words are going to be repeated again and again and again to give emphasis here that God himself is the, de the, de the designer and the great architect. If you turn with me in, uh, in uh, chapter 25, verse 40, notice at the end of the chapter, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. So he reminds Moses. Now remember, well, I already told you how to do it. Uh, but I want you to remember, make it after the pattern of what I showed you in the mount. In chapter 26 and verse 30, he says, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. In chapter 27 and verse 8, And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same according to the work thereof, even of gold and of blue and of purple and of scarlet and fine twine linen. And he goes on to say that this is going to be after the pattern that I have given you. Uh, that was chapter 28, chapter 27. Excuse me, verse 8. And so, uh, hallow with, with boards, uh, shalt thou make it as it showed, as I, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. You see that later in Numbers chapter eight, and even in the New Testament, Acts chapter seven and Hebrews chapter eight, it's repeated again and again, uh, that you're going to do exactly as you've been told. Uh, God is very precise in the design and in uh, lay, the, the layout and all the material and all the furniture and everything. There is a specific design and intent in those things. And so here's what I'm saying is that the chief purpose of the tabernacle is to, be, uh, is to understand, the chief purpose of the tabernacle is to understand its meaning and its message. The, the chief purpose of the tabernacle is to understand its meaning and its message. Here's why I put it this way. Because as we think about um, human accomplishments today, have not men constructed buildings of greater proportion? Have not men constructed buildings of weightier material? Have not men constructed buildings of more, per, uh, more permanent and durable? Have not men constructed buildings with more majesty and grandeur? Now, I, I know in the eyes of men, uh, but when we think about this tabernacle, we're talking about the dimensions in just a moment. And actually, I had a, I, I was going to, I forgot. I, I, I came to church early to uh, make copies so that you could see the, the, the dimensions of the tabernacle, and I forgot. So I'm going to give them to you, but it's easier to visualize them. But, but the point I'm making is that the chief purpose of the tabernacle is not primarily to make it grand 
and spectacular, but it's a, there's a meaning and a message in it. And I'm thinking here about what we mentioned that the, the dedication and the explanation given about the tabernacle is of, of greater proportion in the scriptural revelation, of greater proportion than the creation itself. And when we examine all of those things, we think, well, uh, God himself is the architect. God himself is the designer. And the question, why would God make something so small? For himself. Uh, why would God uh, make something that is not permanent? As maybe the temple would be, right? He didn't tell them to build a temple. He tell, told them to build a tabernacle, a, a tent. You remember, isn't that the struggle of David later? When he says, I'm sitting here and I dwell in the palace, but God dwells in a tent? And he thought, how ridiculous is that? And so David, when he thought of God and where he was and the, the majesty of the palace and the, the grandeur of the palace that he was dwelling in, he think, well, why is God over here dwelling in a tent? It seems ridiculous to think in the eyes of man that God, who is the architect and the designer, would say, I want you to build something that I'm going to dwell in and make it in our eyes so insignificant as to be in a tent. Why a tent? Why is something so small? As a matter of fact, if we think about the details of the tabernacle itself, all of the majesty and the glory of the tabernacle is not to be seen on the outside. It is found on the inside. You see, the enemy nations who would think about God, I would imagine that the Philistines and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they were all uh, pagan worshipers. They all had great temples. Think about the culture of where they came from, Egypt, and you think about all the great temples they had and, and all the gods that they worship and all the glory and the things that have been seen about the, the, the great uh, things that they, they, they uh, the great architect and the great designers, and we think that even the pyramids is one of the seven wonders of the world, and people say, oh, we don't, still don't know how they made those things. And yet, to the people of Israel, they come from that setting, and, and now they're about to hear from God. Here's God. He wants you to build Him a house. And it's going to be in a tent. You see, this is not meant to primarily display the glory and the grandeur of God as much as it is to portray Jesus Christ coming among men and dwelling among men and becoming a man. And the glory of Jesus Christ is not found in his outward appearance, but it is found inwardly in who he is. You think of the tabernacle and say, wow, the linen for the fence, the tent, a structure, but really all the glory is to be found, think about it, in the message that the tabernacle itself is communicating. And by the way, God being the chief designer would have man understand, would have man understand, knowing that man would tend to associate worship with a structure, with a structure. He does not do that for his people. 
You see, when we think about church, we say this all the time, that the church is not the building, it's the people. And the chief interest of a church is not what's found, as you can see, from the outside. Wow, that's a great building. But chiefly is to be found what is inside. And you remember, what, where is Jesus Christ with regards to the church? He is in the midst of the church. And the chief way that the world is going to learn about Jesus Christ and about the Lord is not going to be found with how grand our buildings are, but it's going to be found with how He is displayed among the people who are within the local church. You can build the greatest building that's ever been built, and it will communicate absolutely nothing about God until you go inside. But there's a sixth thing we learn, and that is a sixth thing we learn, and that is we learn that man is not permitted to put forth his own ideas, materials of his own choosing, or practices of his own wisdom. Do you notice here in verse 8 and 9, he says, All that I show thee after the pattern, the pattern even so shall ye make it. Uh, Moses has no freedom to put in his own advice. He has no a freedom to put in his, his own ideas about what should be added, whether it is to the dimensions or to the materials themselves. So think about the tabernacle. Picture in your mind a rectangular space marked out on the ground measuring 75 feet wide by 150 feet long. This rectangular plot was enclosed by a white linen fence measuring seven and a half feet high the white linen was suspended like a curtain on brazen pillars and the pillars themselves resting on a foundational brazen socket the fence surrounding the north side the south side and the west side on the east side you would find the gate which gave the only entrance into the outer court the gate was 30 feet wide. The gate gave entrance into what is called the court of the Gentiles or the outer court. As you would proceed into the outer court, you come in through the gate, just inside the gate on the eastern side, right behind the gate, you would find a brazen altar. To the west, moving closer to the uh, tabernacle itself, to more to the west of the altar was the wash basin containing water for the cleansing of the worshipers before they entered into the holy place located inside of the tabernacle. The altar and the laver were the only two items who, that would be visible on the outside of the tabernacle in the outer court, and that outer court was without a roof. But then you would come into the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle itself was uh, flat-roofed. Also rectangular in, in, um, uh, in a tent-like structure located on the westernmost end of the enclosed fence. This tabernacle was easily, uh, an easily movable structure. It was 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 45 feet long. The tabernacle was divided with two rooms. The first was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. This first room was called the holy place or the first sanctuary. The second room, which was, the, uh, which was separated from the first room by a veil, was called the holy of holies. It was shaped like a cube, 15 feet high, 
15 feet wide and 15 feet long. In the holy place, you would find three pieces of furniture. That's, uh, again, the first sanctuary. You would find three pieces of furniture, the dining table to the north side, the lamp on the south side, and between these and slightly to the rear was the altar of incense. And as you move into the Holy of Holies, on the other side of the veil stood the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. There were in total seven pieces of furniture, all pointing in some aspect, in some aspect, to the perfection of the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, who is our meeting place with God, who is our tabernacle. An outer court of white linen for offense. A brazen altar, a laver, and as you go into the Holy of Holies, three, just three pieces of furniture. And as you would step into the Holy of Holies, just two pieces of furniture. That's it. Simple. I reflect on, if you study just in, uh, uh, especially during uh, Greek uh, mythology and the gods of all the temples. Man, those things were complex. Those things were vast and, and great. The workers themselves were innumerable in those places. And here is the true God, the one who is indeed the creator of the universe, makes a tabernacle made of common material, with limited piece of furniture, nothing is to be added to it. Nothing is to be taken out of it. It is to be exactly as God said. And so man here is not permitted to put forth his own ideas. He cannot choose his own materials. Nor can he invent some practice of his own wisdom. He is to do everything in accordance to what God says. So I say to us again that the chief purpose of the tabernacle is not to show us how glorious God is, but there is a message contained within as we enter into the outer court, into the holy place, and into the holy of holies. There's something that is of much greater significance. God had told, just told his people in Exodus chapter 20 that they should not make unto him any graven image. There is no image of God in this tabernacle. There is no statue. There is nothing where you could say, oh, let's move God over here. You can't grab a hold of that God. You see, this tabernacle is, in, in, in my estimation, and I, I'm talking here about my, my own reasoning, couldn't we make something more glorious than that? And here's what that's rooted in. It's rooted in the misunderstanding of who God is. Because here's who God is. God's ways are not man's ways. And God is teaching, is going to teach his people through this tabernacle something about himself, something about Jesus Christ, something about his work toward men. 
We think about the tabernacle and really what is what is said about this tabernacle. It's important for them to keep exactly the way God said in Hebrews chapter nine. The Bible says it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, this earthly tabernacle is there to show us what's going on in heaven. Well, what's going on beyond what is in earth, it's supposed to, in a sense, show us the, the great condescension of God uh, in this earthly tabernacle, in this structure that's not even a permanent structure in everything that is laid out the way exactly God said it should be laid out. When Jesus Christ came, then said, I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And we're going to find that as I describe to you the tabernacle just a moment, that Jesus Christ himself, who is the who is embodied in the tabernacle, is the one who is our great high priest, who entered into the, 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 the eastern gate, who offered himself on the brazen altar, and then who took his blood uh, into the holy place. And then he would go into the place that was forbidden for men to enter, and he would go into the holy of holies and present his own blood before God and who to to show that the sacrifice pleased the father and all that we're going to see here in the layout and all the materials are going to show us who Jesus Christ is but here the idea is that the tabernacle itself pictures and shows us Jesus Christ do you remember what is said about Jesus Christ in John 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But then in verse 14 it says, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. You know what the word dwelt means? It means tent, tabernacle. Jesus, when he came, he dwelt among men, just like God when he brought the tabernacle in the midst of the people. The word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Not what was outward. He was a common man. There was nothing on his outside that man could say, Wow, he is a spectacular man. What the importance about Jesus Christ is who he was on the inside. He became a man without ceasing to be God. He was made in the likeness of man. He was born of a woman, yet still God. And so we don't bow today before a representation of Jesus Christ because it's not the outward representation of Jesus Christ that we are impressed with, but it's the inward essence of who he is that we ought to be impressed with. And so it is with the tabernacle. It is not the outward that we are impressed with, but rather what is found inside that we are impressed with. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of God bodily. The fullness of God was in Christ. The fullness of God was in Christ. By the way, we believe and we affirm today that Jesus is God. He is God. And if any man denies that Jesus is God, 
He is an infidel and a heretic, according to 1 John. You cannot deny that Jesus is God. Uh, God, uh, here's the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus is God. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, I'm thinking about uh, when the angel appeared and he says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The tabernacle is just a foreshadow of Jesus Christ coming and being in the midst of man. But he came after man sinned to be the redemption. Just like this tabernacle is going to be constructed. They're all coming now. The materials are going to be gathered. But the tabernacle is not constructed. The tabernacle does not dwell among the children of Israel until after they had committed idolatry and rebelled against God. And so Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he came in the midst of sinners. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, all of the Old Testament, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sin and is now seated at the right hand of God. And so understand here, there's a reason why, as we learn about this tabernacle, that this tabernacle is there as a representation of Jesus Christ and his work and what he came to do. And so therefore, the materials communicating who Jesus Christ is are specific and have a significance attached to them. This sanctuary is to be consecrated to the people just as Christ. Uh, we are to consecrate ourselves to Jesus Christ. We learn that this sanctuary is the dwelling place of God, and certainly Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We learn that God is the designer of the tabernacle and the architect, and the chief thing about Jesus Christ is not the outward display of his flesh, but what he came to do as God for mankind. And so we are not permitted to put forth our own ideas about how salvation is accomplished. We are, are not permitted uh, uh, to uh, have materials of our own choosing or to put forth our own ideas or to have our own practice about religion, about the representations of God. We have to be very specific as to who God is. And really, Exodus chapter 25 through 40 is very specific. Often overlooked scriptures. But everything points us to Christ, to Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the chief manifestation of God's condescension to man. Jesus Christ, who is represented in the tabernacle, the creator of all things, who dwelt among men, he allowed those men, those vile sinners, to, to take him and to crucify him, to spit on him and to rip his beard. The animosity that, that they had towards him, his, uh, his body was so marred more than any man. And if we're not careful, we might tend to think of Jesus Christ with respect to him being a man. 
but in Jesus Christ dwelt the fullness of God bodily. Um, I'll be honest with you, I have a hard time with this. I, I, I have a hard time uh, thinking about a God who, who would become a man and allow those whom he created, those into whom he uh, breathed the breath of life, the, the same men that God can just say in a moment and your breath is gone and your spirit returns to the one who gave it. It's hard to think about a God who would do that. But that's the kind of God that we have. And the remainder of the book of Exodus is dedicated specifically to show us the fullness and, and, and what we're hopefully going to appreciate by the end of this study uh, of the chapter of Exodus, of the book of Exodus, is to appreciate that the ministry of Jesus Christ is actually much grander than we have a concept of often. It's not just that he died for us. There's many other things that are part of the tabernacle that speaks of his ministry towards us. You see, salvation, yes, it is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that we are sealed under the day of redemption. Nothing will change that. But often there's a lot of other ministries that God, that Jesus Christ has towards us that often we neglect to see or neglect to understand. And so let's uh, dive into God's word and seek to get the full blessing that we have from this uh, revelation, understanding that we can learn from it, we can profit from it, and when we come to the New Testament, having an understanding of those chapters will give us a greater appreciation because the New Testament assumes that we know those things. And so it will just deepen our appreciation for God, and uh, let's ask the Lord to help us. Uh, all, you know, um, there are many things I pray for uh, when I'm presenting the Word, and, and coming tonight, I, I feel really inadequate to convey to you God and who He is and His glory. Um, but one of the things I'm praying for is that when we study God's Word, that we would just be more amazed at God than we've ever had before. That we would be more appreciative of God than we've ever had before. That we would stand in awe of God more than we've ever had before. Um, that it would develop in us a greater love for God than we've ever had before. And the, the spirit of the church ought to be, I can't wait to get to go know God more. I, I can't wait to serve God. I can't wait to see what God is going to do for me. I, I, I'm rejoicing continually in what God has done for me. And so uh, let's, let, let's just uh, uh, stand amazed at God and, and who he is. Were it not for God and his mercy, uh, we all deserve to be in hell.